0: I think an equitable industry has no caps on licenses and uh, allows for home grow and allows for easy access for patients and entrepreneurs and consumers to all get the things that they need and participate in the industry.
1: This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields and with me as always is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Chris Becker, co-founder of the Honeybee Collective. Chris, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? I'm great, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to so dive in. Kellen,
2: how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Excited to talk to um, another company operating out in Colorado, on the West Coast. How are okay. you,
1: Brian? I'm doing well. I'm excited because Chris and I have Maryland roots as well. So there is some East Coast ties there. So... So Chris, for our listeners that aren't friendly about you,
0: can you share a little background about yourself? Sure thing. Uh, Chris Becker, co-founder of the Honeybee Collective. We are a sustainable cannabis brand based out of Colorado. Our mission is to create community wealth and a sustainable future. We do that through employee ownership and sourcing the best environmentally uh, friendly cannabis that we can find. I uh, have been in the cannabis industry about 5 years now. Pretty much all sales roles and a little bit of operational stuff. Wouldn't want to be
1: in any other industry. Love it. So. I, I want to talk about like the origin of the Honeybee Collective. I know it's employee owned. Can you take us through like the early days? How how did that conversation start? Where did the idea come and take us like kind of the origin concept of it?
0: Sure. So uh, about two years ago now, I during the, the pandemic. Um I wanted to start a company. I wanted to work with people that um, I think are really impressive people and people that I enjoy being around. And I reached out to a group of about 15 people via email said, hey, what would you think about starting a company? Um, I think it's uh, easy enough to start a private label cannabis company. And I think we have a real opportunity to reach consumers in a way that other brands currently don't. Um, Meaningful messaging that resonates with them. And we could do some good in the world with the profits that we create. And that was the premise. That was uh, enough to get a bunch of people on an interest call. From there, we deployed some surveys to see if this idea actually resonated with people who smoke weed. Uh, we had several thousand people who identify as daily cannabis consumers respond to our survey and overwhelmingly supported it and said, yes, this is absolutely something that we are missing in the market. Um, and from there, we def- we refined the idea, refined our positioning and did a lot of research to come up with this unique kind of employee-owned structure.
1: When getting started with it, were there hesitations like, hey, this is going to be harder? Obviously, as you've seen, everything in in cannabis is a little challenging. And then kind of taking a different path, right, with an employee-owned or maybe from the onset and taking a a path less traveled. Was there hesitations? Were there initial challenges there that you can
0: kind of expand upon? Sure. um, Not a lot of hesitation. We had a lot of enthusiasm, but there certainly were a lot of initial challenges. from even the concept of uh, a non-revenue producing employee-owned company is rather foreign. Most employee-owned companies are a founder exit and they're not like startups. Um, so it was, it was kind of difficult to arrive at the corporate ownership structure. Um, we also had to go out and raise money and we had a lot of, I would say... Hesitance or lack of understanding from investors, so uh, we ended up crowdfunding, and that was our solution to the the money problem.
2: What was it like launching a, a company in kind of like a saturated
0: market like Colorado? I mean, right? The idea of a private label cannabis company actually works best in a saturated market. Cannabis brands are what add value to a commodity product, right? It's either its form factor and its brand. Um, so we came up with some form factors that daily cannabis consumers already are reaching for or, or want, um, more of, and we put our brand on it and we, uh, speak to consumers in a way that's meaningful to them in terms of the, the values of the product and the values of the brand, which are the reasons that people support one company over another.
1: So when you're forming the, the origin, right? And the investors have the questions they say, Hey, Chris, this sounds great, but like, how do I know? That people are going to be tied to this for the long term like is this is more of like a concept that works better like in theory versus actually on paper are those some of the questions you fielded and then when you went through with the, the crowdfunding did the investors also have similar questions what did they get in exchange for equity was it access to information to the products what what was it exchange in that moment
0: i think initial investors not being the daily cannabis consumer themselves were skeptical of the consumer research that we had gathered that that said people would support our brand. And as an early stage brand, it's reasonable to with zero sales, it's reasonable for an investor to go, I'm not sure that you're going to kill it in the market, right? And, and and despite founder enthusiasm, it's okay for them to say, uh, I don't know about this, right? And they want to see some sales, and maybe they'll invest next year. Um, uh, when we went for the crowdfunding. People asked very few questions because they very much related to what we stood for um, as an employee-owned company that guarantees living wages and is trying to reduce waste and increase uh, environmental-friendly practices in the cannabis industry. All of those were things that people identified with and were willing to put their money towards to support.
2: That's awesome. Could you walk us through some of uh, the unique, sustainable
0: aspects of your guys' company? Absolutely. Number one is the employee ownership. We think that is the most sustainable corporate ownership structure in terms of fairness, equity for the people that are really creating value day-to-day in an organization. Um, I don't think that excessive corporate pay is sustainable, um, excessive pay disparities, and wealth inequality. on an unsustainable trajectory that either requires um, innovative solutions like employee ownership, or complete systems change and revolution. And if the rich don't want to get eaten, I suggest that they sell some portions of their company to their employees. So that's number one in our sustainability efforts. Number two is we source cannabis that's grown using environmentally friendly practices. When I say that, I mean greenhouse for outdoor grown flower that's not using a whole lot of high energy lights and um, preferably little to no HVAC usage. and low inputs in in as far as fertilizers are concerned. So we prefer growers that use living soil, which is basically a natural ecosystem that feeds the plants rather than having to put commercial agricultural inputs into the crop. Um, And then number three is our packaging. We uh, we source all uh, compostable or or recyclable packaging.
1: So I want to stay with the first topic and, and kind of the origination of the team and how that works. So from a day-to-day standpoint, are the responsibilities split? And then how, how does the equity work so people are making decisions? Is there someone in charge where it says, if there's a disagreement amongst the members of the team, you know, we defer to this person? How, how do decisions be made? Because sometimes there has to be conflict amongst some of the team members in which direction to go. So how, how does that work?
0: Sure. So our operating agreement um, assigns day-to-day managers for routine tasks. And then strategic decisions are made by the founder team and our employees. So our employees, we, we factor their input into um, our strategic decision-making processes, whether that comes to large purchases, deciding whether to, to retain profits or reinvest them, um, all those kind of decisions we, we make as a team and, and include employee input in that.
1: Who else in the cannabis industry is doing this?
0: Very few people that I'm aware of, uh, employee ownership is pretty new. There are a few groups that are ready to deploy a lot of ESOP financing to roll up dispensaries as employee-owned operations. The investors I've spoke to that are, that are doing that uh, believe, like I believe, that it's a more equitable way of ownership. And in particular, in the cannabis industry is uh, more motivating for uh, employees to in the retail environment, upsell and 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 have a reason to create a great customer experience.
1: Is there a period of time that they have to be on the team in order to have their equity invested? For example, we have people out on the East Coast who are very excited to be in the cannabis industry, but maybe haven't cut their teeth yet. So, you know, some people may be interested in joining, but once they get involved, recognize, hey, this industry isn't for me the startup life isn't for me. So is that a challenge that you face? And, and have you had to overcome that previously?
0: we have a short vest period uh, of one year is the first vesting benchmark. And then you're fully vested by three years. People don't stick with companies for a very long time anymore. And uh, we, we, when we, when we get into the troubles of ESOPs and, and why they work and don't work and why they motivate people in some companies and, other people think that they're not that worthwhile was because of things like vesting periods that favored long-term employees over short-term employees and that kind of thing. So we tried to make it a little bit more fair and equitable. Awesome.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. I'm fascinated by the concept and delivery of that. So that's kind of... You got hopping, hop in, Kevin? I was just wondering... Um...
2: How does the decisions... You said you talk to every employee about decisions. Um, is it like a voting thing? Or is it like someone just walks around and gets opinions and like collects them and you guys go to the boardroom and like have a conversation? And you're like, Joe said this and Bill said that. Like, how is that
0: actually like executed? So currently, we're a small team of 4 founders and, our, and 1 employee hire. So we execute those kind of decisions in a discussion format in a, in a team meeting typically. Totally. Okay
1: yeah i can imagine 100 people chris is coming back i got 18 people over here i got 19 over here i got 10 that are undecided and seven <laughs> that are still smoking will come back to me when they're ready but i mean listen it's 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 a it's a really optimistic approach and i, and I tip my cap to you for for kind of going through it and, and to putting your 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 values forward and saying like hey like this is possible i'm going to be a part of this and i'm going to help lead the change because i recognize currently what's happening in the cannabis industry is not what i think is best and i want to put you know, my foot forward and demonstrate that. So moving on a little bit, some of the products. Talk to us about the products that your team has, you know, how you source the products and what makes them different from the market.
0: Cool. So all of our products come in recyclable or compostable packaging. Um, I just broadly say that plastic recycling is a myth. It, does, it, it, it is not a real thing. The majority of plastic that goes in recycling bins ends up in in landfills. So we use tin or we use bioplastics that are home compost for our packaging. Currently, we have three skews. We have a 10-pack of pre-rolls. That's our most popular SKU. Um, people love to be able to reach for a joint and just have it conveniently rolled. Uh, it's a half-gram pre-roll, so it's satisfying, but it's not too much. And um, then we also have a two-pack of pre-rolls that comes in a home compostable tube. Um, Very convenient on the go. Uh, And that's very popular, especially at the consumption lounge in Denver that just opened up. And then we have a five-gram flour tin. This is uh, 40% more than your typical eighth, Uh, 40% more product, 40% less waste. Uh, What I recognized is that when somebody buys an eighth in a dispensary in a typical plastic jar, uh, you end up creating three and a half pounds of plastic waste for every pound of flour sold. And to me, that is just unconscionable. Uh, So we use tin for that five gram flour unit. Uh, It can go right in a recycling bin. Tin is infinitely recyclable. Um, It doesn't lose structural integrity. So it it, it, um, ends up staying out of landfills for a lot longer.
2: How did you guys settle on the providers and uh, your vendors for all these packaging? Because this is very unique in in the industry.
0: There's a few emerging vendors that coordinate with overseas factories that have like created SKUs specifically to solve this problem. We ended up working with a company called Stephen Gould packaging. Um, They, they work with a lot of cannabis companies and uh, they have a whole sustainability line that they have, um, come up with. And our compostable tubes come locally from Colorado. They're from a company called Dama Distributing um, compostable tubes and compostable labels on the tube. So you can put it right in your home compost bin and it'll be gone in three months. What was that journey like, finding those vendors? Frustrating, because there are a lot of people that claim to offer sustainable packaging and then when you receive it, there's nothing sustainable about it. The, you know, There's um, a lot of people using plastics that they're putting some kind of enzyme in that they claim makes it degrade faster, but they won't tell me if that's like a 1,000 years versus 10,000 years. <laughs> um, and uh, there's a lot of denuous stuff. So it, 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 w- it was frustrating. It's a pretty niche uh, item to find. I mean, it, it's, it's interesting when you buy packaging, it comes to you and buys. It's labeled as the product. So you, you are buying a product when you're buying packaging. And it's, uh, yeah, the, the whole development process was very interesting. One of my partners works in consumer packaged goods. So she's been through this process a million times with overseas factories for various items, bags, baby clothes, all kinds of stuff. So having her was invaluable.
1: Yeah, I can imagine some brands are like, yeah, we take care of all these things. We check the box and then you ask them the questions and they're like, no one's ever asked us these questions. We just, it's a marketing thing. We just kind of check the box and like, uh, you know, how that works, like we'll have to ask somebody. And I'm sure once you start digging in, you recognize real quick, it's like these people, they are not sure what we're doing. I'm sure you guys got some pretty cool stories there or some pretty frustrating stories there.
0: Pretty frustrating. I, I'm just generally frustrated by like half truths, especially when it comes to the things that I care about. And greenwashing is one that I will be highly confrontational about because like the <laughs> the future is hanging on a thread, and uh, the world is burning up. I mean, even in Colorado, like where people built all these. Houses with no air conditioning. Now you can't live without air conditioning in Colorado. Like it's crazy how fast the climate is changing. And so I feel passionately that, like, if we're going to sell stuff, we need to really reduce our impact on the environment.
1: Does that add to the cost layer when you get the sustainable packaging as well? I, I know you, your team takes a lot of steps in order to make sure this is thorough. Does that add into the layer or does it get cut out of the margin?
0: How does that work? Right now we're, 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 Cutting it out of the margin and, and absorbing it. Um, we have found that people will pay uh, a premium. It's not, it's not more than like 20%, basically. Uh, people will pay a premium for sustainable products. Uh, interestingly, though, when we did surveys about what elements of a sustainable business do you care most about, people-friendly practices were much more important to people than the earth-friendly practices. Huh? Any idea why? I think some of it is the timing of the surveys. Right now we're in like a labor revolution, right, where people are waking up to realize the value of their production. And then I think there's also a lack of education around all the greenwashing stuff that does go on. So people assume that they are making sustainable choices already when in fact that they're they're making the same choices as everybody else.
1: Yeah, some people might have a false sense of what actually is happening, right? If you put your stuff in the recycling, but the garbage man takes the, the plastic and throws it in the garbage, are you really recycling? And and eventually that it's like, hey, what is really happening after that? So I want to stay with the grams. You said you have a five gram product, right? So you have an eighth is, is wasn't enough, and then you went to a five gram. Was there kind of conversations about four and a half or six? Where how did you settle on five?
0: conversations with consumers and a little bit of intuition uh, and also trying to settle on a uh, price point that was at or under $50 at the retail level.
1: It's fascinating. So let's talk about the the marketing for the products. It has more of the desired effects on it versus the actual strain, right? Can you take us through the origin of that and how you, your team came to that decision?
0: <laughs> uh, we use peace, pause, and party instead of indica hybrid sativa to try to guide people as to the effects of the products that they can expect to experience uh, and give them another reason to reach for our product on the shelf. Um, Cannabis branding is all about giving people a reason to reach for your product from six feet away and behind a piece of glass, right? So you need to be loud and proud and colorful. So that's what we did. We used peace, pause, and party. We came up with that. It was one of my partners and I had a hour-long phone call and smoke session and uh, tried to come up with different words. Peace and party came first. And then uh, I believe she just dove into a thesaurus as we were both smoking joints on the phone, found the word pause, and that was it. We, we, we were done. <laughs> I love it. So what is pause? Pauses is your hybrid strains. It's really good for resetting your day. It's, it's anytime smoke. I got it. So, if I wanted
1: to fall into the couch, I wouldn't have pause. If I wanted to reset my day and maybe jumpstart the afternoon
0: session, I would take the pause. Right, exactly. And if you really want some high energy, those party strains, those like high energy sativas with the limonene and that kind of thing and the piney. Um, but the pause is just good, chill, anytime, reset your day smoke.
2: Those uh, names resonate pretty well with all of your guys' growers and vendors?
0: Uh, most people say it's cute. One person said that they didn't like the, you know, oh, I like it. The dribble peas, but, uh, you know. I like
1: so it. You, you got to have one person <laughs> who doesn't like it, right? Otherwise, you're not right. It right. If, if right. If everyone was saying yes to it, I think there'd be more of an issue. So I think it's good if that person had some pause, right, with it. Uh, <laughs> no, no fun funny. intended. So let's talk mm-hmm. about cannabis grown indoors versus outdoors. How do consumers tell the difference? And how, how do us as consumers, if we want to make that priority difference, how do we recognize the importance of that?
0: Sure. So there is a dramatic impact to the environment from growing indoors that many consumers aren't aware of. Um, when you shut off the, the natural rays of the sun and then power up uh, high power grow lights you end up consuming just a ton of energy and you also need to use uh, HVAC to keep things either hot or cool, depending on where you're growing. That's so detrimental to our environment. Sun-grown cannabis does not use power from the grid. If it's uh, grown in living soil, it's not using commercial agricultural inputs. It's not um, having this negative impact on, on soil and water quality and all that kind of stuff. So, If people care about the future, I I, I encourage them to to choose sun-grown cannabis, really. Um, On top of that, sun-grown cannabis routinely has higher levels of total cannabinoids and terpenes than cannabis that's grown indoors. The sun gives the plant the full spectrum of light and in turn, the plant produces the full spectrum of cannabinoids and terpenes that it's capable of. Uh, So if you grow the same plant side by side, Indoors versus outdoors, c- genetically identical plants. You're going to have uh, a superior plant in the outdoor uh, environment. It's going to be healthier. I mean, there's less pest
2: problems when they are grown outside. I mean, they tend to be stronger plants. Um, it's it's wild to me. I mean, it, it, outdoor cannabis should be the way that cannabis is grown, and it's very very interesting that all of these mature markets have kind of placed a premium on the bud structure and the aesthetics of an indoor plant versus an outdoor plant. And personally, from a consumption standpoint, I think it's a more enjoyable experience consuming outdoor flower. Absolutely. I I mean, right. And you don't have to like all of the chemicals that are used in the production of indoor cannabis is where you've seen 70 plus pesticides now have to be tested for in California because people are throwing every chemical they can at these indoor plants because it's inherently not natural for the plant to be grown inside. And so I think that there's a huge, huge
0: issue. Yeah, absolutely. You still have to fight some of those things when you grow outdoors, um, but you can net use less product outdoors, in my opinion. And you do much happier, more resilient plants, stronger plants, bigger plants with bigger yields at a much lower cost. Way bigger plants. Um, I think... You know, the the thing with mature markets and and the reason that indoor cannabis has persevered is the the state-by-state legalization versus just federal reform. I think if, if people could buy in the mail cannabis grown in the Emerald Triangle or in Southern Oregon outdoors, they wouldn't buy indoor-grown weed from MSOs or anybody else, really. I mean, you have a few small indoor craft growers locally, and then most people would prefer the legacy crops grown in uh, places that are favorable for growing cannabis.
1: I think one of the challenges, though, as a consumer is that exactly what you said, Chris, is that you look with your eyes. So when you see a plant that has a certain um, appearance to it, you kind of just gravitate towards that and you can't really tell the difference. So if it's labeled, maybe I could see that. But like exactly like you said, Chris, consumers look first with their eyes and then, then reach. So how do they tell the difference between the plant, whether
0: it's sun grown or indoor grown just by their eyes? With your eyes, it's pretty hard to tell. Good outdoor grown cannabis is indistinguishable from good indoor grown cannabis, except for sort of the health and, and brightness of the buds, really. Uh, we chose to put the word sustainably grown on our packaging. You know, as the market evolves, you need to give people a reason to reach for it. And the word sustainably grown seem to resonate with people. Things like organic, because the USDA does not, you know, apply a organic designation to cannabis farms. So we're, we're we're trying to find those words and qualities that do resonate with the consumer that make it meaningful. There are other certifications as well that people put on their packaging, sun and earth certification, uh, clean green certification, to try to indicate that it has similar qualities. but. We're hoping to be the leader in sustainable cannabis, so that people see Honeybee Collective and immediately go, "That's good, clean, earth-friendly cannabis." And I think
2: that's so important. I mean, I remember when we when I was up in Washington, the only way that they could uh, determine the difference was by the license. So the license that was acquired was an outdoor license, and so there's a premium on indoor flower. And I remember going to multiple dispensaries and talking to the managers there, and then being like. It looks the same, but I have to price it at $10 less because your license says you grew it outdoors.
1: And even more so though, right? Like as a consumer and I walk in, I'm not going to tell a difference. You would need to say it on the packaging for me even to notice that or I'd have to ask the bud tender to provide a recommendation there. and As we've seen before, uh, packaging isn't the easiest of game to navigate, given all of the the wording that has to go on it, because it is littered with information. So having that kind of stand out, you're right. From a brand standpoint, it's really critical to have that information be kind of a core principle to the brands that the consumer knows going in, that this is the expectation, this is the trust factor that I get with the Honeybee Collective, and I know that it's an outdoor-grown
0: flower. Yeah. And and we do source from greenhouse growers as well. So uh, one thing I will say is that we really believe greenhouse growing is a a, a happy medium and um, provides a lot of the benefits of outdoors, the lower uh, energy usage and all that kind of stuff, Um, but gives you the environmental control, uh, ability to keep pests out, ability to moderate temperature and that kind of thing.
1: So let's move on. What is blunts and bingo?
0: once and bingo is a fundraiser event we just had this past weekend we had about 75 people come out we played bingo we gave out prizes from jane west Jaden jane elements boulder dispensary um lady lady justice brewing death and co uh skin lab denver uh fields of weed we had so many great sponsors here and um Ultimately, we raised one thousand and seventy-seven dollars for a local uh, mutual aid project called Denver Community Fridges, that has free food fridges around town to feed people that need it.
1: Awesome! So, how how does it work? What is like what is Blunt and Bingo? Is it exactly like it sounds?
0: It's exactly like it sounds. We had a uh, bingo, uh, we had games of bingo and a blunt rolling competition at the first licensed cannabis bar in Colorado. Oh. So, Jad's Mile High Smoke just opened up. They are the first place in Colorado where you can go and buy weed and smoke it right there. Um, they have, it, it used to be a bar. So you're actually buying weed over a bar. You can buy up to two grams of flour or a half a gram of concentrates or some combination of edibles. And uh, so people were rolling blunts. We had a blunt rolling competition. People were playing bingo. We fed everybody. And uh, we had some raffle prizes. It was a great time. Who was the judge
1: of the contest? A local radio host. How, how, did he, how did he judge? Was it
0: by taste? Was it by size, look? She uh, did look, feel, and smoked every single blunt that got entered. So she smoked about 12 blunts. <laughs> she didn't smoke them all down to the end, but she hit every single one of them uh, and uh, ultimately chose the winner based on look and uh, quality of the pool. They were I- all smoked weed, so she didn't have to judge the quality of the weed.
1: I can imagine towards the end of that contest, she was a little harder to judge. She's like, well, I really like the last two, and I'm not really sure which one I like more. Maybe I just keep going. um and just be a universal tie. I got to hand it to her. That is dedicated to the judging contest. I expected you to be the
0: judge, if we're going to be honest, Chris. <laughs> you know, I I I, I would have chosen the same winner, I think. His blunt looked pretty good. Well said. Well said.
1: So let's let's kind of shift the conversation and let's talk about one of the the common conversations on Twitter. MSOs. Obviously, there's a lot of challenges with going on in the space, and some may argue that they're not doing things necessarily the right way and can do a better job of helping making a more equitable industry. So, Chris, in your opinion, what can MSOs do today in order to do a better job of making a more inclusive industry?
0: MSOs could start by not promoting self-interested uh, legislation, I, I think, is like, stop doing harm is <laughs> the first thing. Um, I don't even need them to do anything actively to promote a more equitable industry. Just please stop actively supporting uh, policies and laws that are inequitable and really just cement their positions. That, that, that's the first ask. If, if they really wanna support an equitable industry, I think an equitable industry has no caps on licenses and uh, allows for home grow and allows for easy access for patients and entrepreneurs and consumers to all get the things that they need and participate in the industry. So um, coming out in support of open access laws, both for consumption and for uh, access in the industry. Uh, I personally know executives at single state and multi-state operators that are not even pro recreational legalization. So it's, it's, you know, they, they could come out supporting policies that are good for entrepreneurs and good for consumers.
1: I know that's a real sticky, sticky subject. And I kind of feel similar to you, right? The limited licenses, I think, only lead to kind of more challenges and unfortunately, potentially more bribery and more corruption, which again, I think is is hurting the industry as a whole. But on the on the flip side, not to defend the MSOs, the longer this goes on like this, the longer they are building their moat from the other challenges and protecting themselves from the bigger fish that are coming in. So from their standpoint, they are helping the industry, but also protecting their investment and asset. Which I agree is not beneficial for the collective.
0: Exactly, it's um, you know what w- the motivations became really perverse once anybody acquired a limited li- license. Right now, you have a do du- a damn near a duty to your shareholders to preserve that. I mean, my old employer sued the state of Maryland for opening up social equity licenses and what they said at the time was the state promised that they would do a demand uh, study before they ever issued any licenses, which was true. Um, But they were called racist and everything else because they were blocking social equity, blocking minority participation in the cannabis industry. They uh, dropped the lawsuit and, and those licenses did end up being issued in Maryland. Yeah. It's, as soon as you have one of these limited licenses, your duty is to protect it. And um, for, from a pure capitalist perspective, not from my values, not from what I want to steal for the industry, but surely from a capital perspective, less competition is better.
1: Right. I mean, Boris Jordan, we, I've had this conversation on Twitter many times. Boris Jordan doesn't work for the cannabis industry. He works for the purely shareholders. And his job and role is to protect his assets to make it grow as much as possible. And if that means hurting others in a, let's say not hurting others directly, but in influencing policy in order to better protect his position, he should do that. And and that's unfortunately kind of the the name of space. So I guess to push the question back on you, Chris, why do you think the states did limited licenses? What do you think was the original intention of it? Was it uh, a different concept that kind of got misconstrued along the way? Or, Or take us through what you think was the original goal of limited licenses
0: some of the people that own limited licenses were involved in the writing of limited license laws. So (laughs) that's the first thing is people saw, hey, uh, we can get legislators to limit licenses based on the fear that they have of legalization. Um, Limited license schemes were more palatable in purple and, um, and even some blue states where there's still a lot of Prohibitionists around uh, or, or conservative culture for whatever reason. Um so it's it, it was a way in, and in my opinion, activists should have held out for better legislation. Um, but there's a lot of people that feel any access is better than no access. And I'm not gonna fault them for that because there are people like that desperately need medical cannabis that now have it due to these limited license laws.
2: And I think from a like a strictly philosophical perspective I think that uh, the idea was that hey let's not let every person come in and start growing weed and just flood the entire state with weed it was like hey we just want to a uh, very small and uh, very small amount of operators so that we can regulate them and keep track of it I think that was the idea philosophically of course it really never panned out like that from the idea to, from concept to execution.
0: Yeah. There 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 was like a little bit of merit to the idea that like, well, not really merit, but the legislatures many times forced the regulators to be self-funded through tax collection. Um by, was these and then like after sale that already commenced. Right. Um, so, New regulators that had never looked at or knew how to regulate cannabis before, all of a sudden are like asking the people that have a license, "Hey, how are we supposed to regulate you?" And <laughs> it's uh, it, it just doesn't work out the way that they meant it to.
2: So you're telling me the horse shouldn't push the cart; it should pull it.
1: <laughs> okay. I like to use the comparison of like the Willy Wonka golden ticket when I talk about the limited license of my friends, right? Because if you think about it, if these massive markets that haven't come online yet, and there's only, let's say, 6 to 12 uh, stations that are open, I mean, you're talking about a massive opportunity to get a huge head start. And to play the other side, Kellen, to challenge you is like, I understand why it'd be beneficial to limit it so people can regulate it. But at the same part, like, this is America, right? Like, this is capitalism, like, figure it out and like, the strong survive. And unfortunately, many businesses will fail. That's part of the process, but at least everyone has a fair crack at the game. And I think at least if the game was fair to start, many people wouldn't feel like there would be um, missed opportunities or challenges in the beginning in order to get their foot in the door for this burgeoning opportunity.
2: Unfortunately, like if you let everyone just have a crack at it, like now we're, you kind of look at California, right? Like you have people that went out and got licenses, you have people that didn't, they're all kind of selling canvas in this super, gray area. And I mean it's it's a giant mess out there. You know what I mean? So like I don't know if and they don't have a cap on licenses in California.
0: I think their problems are more related to the structure of their market and high taxation within their borders. A saturated market, to Brian's point, is a very American capitalist thing. I mean I I don't know why we should be afraid of that. The strong should survive and the weak should perish in the business environment, in my opinion. Um, anything else is corporate socialism. Uh, and I, I don't understand why there's this like tendency towards corporate socialism, but like for for people, it's like <laughs> kick rocks, you know? Um, it's really sad in my opinion. So I, I believe that like a competitive environment really creates the best companies. And that's the one thing I think that is really short-sighted about these limited license laws is that ultimately it's allowing these companies to like create, very unsustainable business models that, um, if cannabis were treated like other commodity products, their businesses wouldn't exist. They would die off very quickly. You, you just you know, you, you talked about MSOs. There's a lot of people growing weed in Florida. You would never grow weed in Florida if you could import it from California. Because the conditions are terrible for growing wheat, even indoor, they are. You're, you're fighting a crazy amount of heat, like it, it's insane, and humidity. and humidity. Yeah, so you know that that that's those are now all a bunch of unsustainable businesses. All of that real estate is going to be like non-viable, defunct in a, in a, in five to ten years. To your point, Brian, it is a golden tick. and many of those places will already have been paid off. I know people in Maryland that have already paid off their facilities and their investors that are receiving distributions because it's been a fucking cash cow. is my language. But uh, yeah, when you're selling $4,000 pounds of something that costs you under $800 a pound to produce, it's a great business to be in. Yeah. Good margins.
1: Margins are booming, right? <laughs> but it's also not real. It's not sustainable, right? Long term. And I, I think it even gets crazier too is because like, Once we go to interstate commerce, I understand we're far from there. But once we get to that, all of the current operators who are all vertically integrated are going to have to pretty much shuffle in their cards again and and redistribute how they want to do their operations. Because like you said, there's no reason to grow weed in Florida if you could grow it in California and import it. Plus, you you can specialize in certain portions of the supply chain, which ultimately the consumer benefits, right? Because he's getting a more let's say, high-end product by a more established individual and doesn't have to lean on these big MSOs to be stretched super thin from a capital standpoint and by resource, a resource standpoint across the supply chain.
0: Absolutely. I think that's a, a very real weakness um, of, of the MSOs is that uh, how many executives are truly Jeff Bezos' that can piece all these things together, right? And, and, and oversee a conglomerate in all these different, highly specialized areas of business. Not that many. And you know what? they had sick margins anyway that they could fund any pet project they wanted to, which is not going to be the truth for people that grow cannabis in a low margin environment.
1: No way. It's pretty wild. And it's cool. It's it's fascinating to think about it now and recognize where we're going in the future, but and also to watch it from a case study standpoint to see how these big companies handle the transitions. As they kind of not necessarily sell off assets, but they kind of redistribute their organization internally in order to prepare for the next steps. Because I'm sure they'll get a, a heads up that hey, something like this is happening in three to five years. It's time to start selling off some of your assets, and then I think we can kind of get word and recognize it as it's probably more uh, peasant people in the in the news space of recognizing the the steps are currently
0: happening. I, I think the people that already have this foresight about future of like the structure of the market are um, franchising their dispensaries and they're not going vertical in every market that they're expanding into. Uh, I think you're going to see a lot more of that. There's a few franchises that are really taking a lot of real estate here in Colorado. Uh, I know my old employer uh, is now franchising their dispensary experience and I think you'll see a lot more of that. And and that's to preserve against like... if. You know, you can't have tied houses and alcohol. And so people see that and they're, they're seeing, oh, I'm going to be forced to divest all these dispensaries that I own. Yeah. And I
2: think that uh, also, I think there's a challenge to going vertical in every state. Like you don't look at any other industry and be like, hey, like Coors Light brews beer in every state, right? Like that's not a thing, right? Like, <laughs> so like it, it just doesn't work economically speaking, you know, like there's just, it's a fine line. Like you don't build manufacturing plants in every single municipality.
1: Economies of scale is like a real thing, right? Yeah, that's what that's I've a, heard. It's a real thing. <laughs> and like from a number standpoint, it's real. So I wonder too, like when we get there, I wonder if the cost of production will just kind of completely drop too as, as things specialize and then they're able to outsource to other areas. So uh, slightly switching gears, Chris, what is one state company or policy that you think is doing things the right way?
0: I'm really impressed with the way New York is is rolling out their market. Um, they are favoring uh, more sustainably grown cannabis in terms of they issued licenses to hemp growers who will either be growing outdoors or in relatively small greenhouses. Um, they're giving lic- they, they, giving licenses to farmers also gives license, gives life to farms. And I think that's incredibly important because farmers are struggling. Cannabis, in my opinion, should be grown in an agricultural outdoor setting, not in an indoor factory setting. Um, And and if that can help save small family farms that are otherwise almost guaranteed to go out of existence, uh, I think that's great and admirable. And then on the retail side, they're prioritizing social equity. They're prioritizing uh, restorative justice by giving licenses to people who were uh, impacted by the war on drugs. And I think that's the right way to go. So I, I really admire New York with the way New York is doing it. I'm sure there's flaws, but uh, I, I think they're, they've gotten it the most right so far.
1: Yeah, the so far is the super important part, right? Like they are taking the steps and they're they are vocalizing items to go forward. But at any moment, you know, they could take a bad step to the right of the list. I way. mean, they're, they're definitely taking their time. To get it right. Uh, it's not fair, dude. Uh, <laughs> the, they said end of the year. They said end of the year. I know we're running out of time, right? We're recording this on July 27th. And they said end of the year confidently. But like, guys, like, we don't have more, many more months left.
0: I, I I bet a little bit of money that they'll make at least a sale before the first and next At year. least a sale. <laughs> <laughs> It'll
1: be like December, <laughs> December 31st, right? They're like, we just got to get this one in. Like, just get a photo op quick, right? Like, get the photo op in. And cut the ribbon. <laughs> you think they get it done before the end of the year?
0: I, I bet that at least one just because it's like the, the PR stuff, PR and then the momentum and they said it. I mean, I you know, I, I believe it.
1: Have you seen <laughs> I, have you seen I like, like the tr- yeah, me too, but like again. Have you seen the trucks and some of the other um, retail front stores that they have in New York? I mean, they they look as close to a dispensary as possible. I had a cousin who stayed with me, he lives in in Portland. And he said that he walked by, it looked like a dispensary. He had no idea New York was open and erect. He went in, they did the normal, the normal jam. He came home with products. He was so stoked to show me. He's like, you told me it wasn't open. I was like, it's not. He's like, then what is this? And I was like, it is not a licensed dispensary, sir. And he was just blown away. And I'm curious to know if you have a perspective on that, right? These operators, or I guess under the radar operators are currently operating in a legal storefront, selling products in the quote unquote gray market. Either as a nonprofit or in a gifting status, in order to escape the loophole. What's your thoughts there?
0: I think that anything, any activity that is currently defined as illicit cannabis is really a tax collection issue and nothing more than that, right? I I don't believe that cannabis should be criminalized in any way for any amount or any growing or processing. None of that should be a jailable criminal offense. It's all just tax evasion. So if those guys are evading taxes, I mean, you know, I'm I'm not a huge fan of tax (laughs) taxes myself, but like that's in my mind, that's the only thing that they're guilty of. Right. I, I think it's very risky and I personally wouldn't engage in it just like for the threat of federal crackdown or like the inability to get a license, a legal license in that market in the future. But hey, it's a smart cash grab right now. And I mean, at the end of the day, it just shows you how much demand out there is for cannabis. Yeah. Yeah. I think it'll be, you know, uh, it'll be difficult, but not impossible to, um, to compete with those. I think that they probably will get close. I mean, down to different look at Colorado,
2: right? Like, I, I don't know what I know buys weed from a truck dealer in Colorado. Right, 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 like it. <laughs> so, I,
1: think, I, I think the consumer is the one that's going to be hurt in this, right? Because if you, if you're just not familiar with products and you go there, and let's say you take a product that's not tested, third party tested, and God forbid something happens, it that just becomes the spiral effect, in my opinion. And I think that just kind of hurts it from a public perception of you know the the nuances with cannabis and all these X Y and Z stuff that that you see on the media where people use cannabis as the scapegoat. Chris, what is an under-recognized challenge operating cannabis that most
0: don't recognize? There's this big scam called metric that, <laughs> that takes uh, just a fraction of every single transaction that you do in cannabis. Uh, whether you are putting a plant in the ground, moving that plant from like one part of your facility or harvesting it or moving it and selling it to a, to a dispensary you have to have these little blue tags that cost 25 to 50 cents every time they create this ridiculous amount of plastic waste. Um, they're not recyclable because they have an RFID tag in them that nobody uses. And, and, their, and their system is constantly down and it's, and it's the mandated seed see the sale tracking system in most states. So um, that is a huge impediment. I would say, I would say just metric being down. Is one of the biggest impediments to productivity in the cannabis industry. It's a good monopoly they got. It's great. <laughs> I'm sure their investors are
2: swimming in dollars. And they're just printing cash. <laughs> 100%. I mean, it's required and like there's no other option.
0: Only like talk there's like, leave to solutions
2: in Washington, but like I think like everyone's gonna be on metric eventually. I believe Vermont is going with another company called Trace as well. Oh, see. So now there's what? Three options, maybe.
1: <laughs> we talk about like limited licenses and then challenges in states. These boys got a lockdown, right? Like they got it locked down on a whole nother level. I can only imagine what they're doing. We got to get one of those guys on the podcast and see what's going on there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They're like Rockefeller is like in, in his grave admiring metric. He's like, right. oh my God, I wish I had a metric. He's just tipping <laughs> tip in his cap. He's like, these boys got it
1: down. <laughs> Since you've been in the cannabinoid industry, what has been the biggest misconception?
0: I think probably that there's immense profits in the industry. Um, in the legal industry, there's not. Most ones are like comparable to typical manufacturing plus their tax disadvantage, so you have less profit. Uh, I think that's probably the biggest misconception overall about cannabis is that these companies are just printing money. Um but from within the industry, I also see this misconception that like a business's success or failure depends on them like really exploiting labor and paying low wages. And when I look at our business model and the business model of our suppliers, a couple bucks more an hour d- does very little to, to the profitability, uh, but it does so much for the happiness of the uh, employees. So... That's one, that's a big thing just from within the industry that I'm passionate about seeing change.
1: That's really well said. Before we do predictions, we ask all of our guests if you could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation, what would it be?
0: Well, the next generation, I don't know this advice will be so valuable for, but like anybody listening in the next year, like the opportunity is still very real and you do not need to. You, your experience in other industries translates directly into cannabis and and can like create incredible value. Um, so I, I would say just don't hesitate to dive in if you're passionate about it. Um, but also don't dive in if you're thinking about just dollar signs because it's as stressful or more as any other entrepreneurial venture. Uh, and um, like I said before, the profits just like are not as incredible as many people think they are.
1: All right. Prediction time. Chris, I dropped you off in D.C. with the ability to change any law or policy you want. What is the first step of item you're changing?
0: Oh, um, I mean, the, the, the first thing I would change if it's just a single item is 280E and and uh, the, having the ability to to write off uh, appropriate <laughs> expenses, right? I mean, that, that's the big... In- the big thing keeping many companies from being profitable is like, this is tax disadvantaged, uh, activity, uh, and we're, we're overpaying and not able to write things off. So that's the first thing I would change. Um, what's the next thing you change? Well, actually I would, I would take a step back. I mean, th- like the first thing I would do is like free all the prisoners and probably abolish prisons in general, actually, <laughs> yeah. if we were just talking about cannabis, but if we're taking a broader view, I'm, doing something not just about like cannabis prisoners, but just like the prison industrial complex in general, because it's like just so unjust. It, 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 there is no justice in the justice system. So actually that is the first thing I would, and I would not just do something cannabis related.
2: What said, Kellen? Uh, cannabis related. I would probably uh, legalize banking in cannabis. You know, I think that there's so many people that would get involved if they could just go to a bank and get a commercial loan. Um, and I think it'd be really, really beneficial to the whole industry. And I think couple, I think opposed uh, to limited license, the fact that there's no institutional uh, support for the industry is the, the other item that's kind of like limiting people's ability to get involved and participate. So that would be the biggest thing I would change.
1: What about you, Brian? Yeah, the capital standpoint is just outrageous, right? Like starting one of these businesses is so much more capital intensive than I think I ever realized. And we're not even plant touching. So I can't even imagine what some of these other operators have to go through. I think for me, the limited licenses, like we talked about before, I think in, in America, you should have the ability to enter industries you want to, given obviously certain understandings. And I think in in here, you sh- if you want to own a dispensary and you have the, the ability to do it, you should be able to do it. You shouldn't be limited to certain numbers or certain aspects. If you can check all the boxes, demonstrate that you're a qualified individual, you should have the opportunity to compete here for a chance for generational wealth. and. You know, not everyone is handed a participation trophy. And unfortunately, some will fail. But I think having the opportunity to compete is really all you could ask for in a space like this. So Chris, for our listeners, they want to get in touch. They want to learn more and they want to support the Honeybee Collective and attend Blunts and Bingo. Where can they find you? Uh,
0: Join the hive on our website, honeybeecollective.com. There's a box you can enter your email and your phone number. We'll let you have new events, giveaways, when new product drops, all that kind of stuff. So that's the best way to stay in touch with us. You can also follow us on uh, social media at the.honeybee.collective. You can follow us on Twitter at Honeybee Canico. I'm at Chris underscore Honeybee uh, if you want kind of more hot takes on the industry. Uh, (laughs) And uh, I think that's all of our socials, yeah.
1: Yeah, I'll link them up in the show notes. Thanks for taking
0: the time. This was fun. Yeah, it was. Thanks, yes. Thanks, Chris.